And welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-hosts Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Hey, uh, I had thought we were going to talk Strange New Worlds, but let's put that off for one more week. Let me ask you this. Uh, you seen that their new Indiana Jones movie? I have. I was pleasantly surprised. I thought it was a good time. I enjoyed how uh the villain is quite clearly Werner Von Braun, which is a local celebrity slash cherished figure here in Huntsville, Alabama, slash paper Operation Paperclip USA. Um, so I love that quite clearly he is Von Braun. Uh, or, you know, a Von Braun stand-in. It wasn't the best writing. I grow weary of so much CGI in every single film. And there were so many scenes where this is only at night because of the CGI. So I, I long for the days of practical effects. But, you know, as a send-off, as just a big globe-drotting romp, as one more chance for Harrison Ford to be Indiana Jones... To wash the taste of Crystal Skull out of our mouths, I thought it was absolutely fine. You hit pretty much all of my notes. The CG at times was egregious. The de-aged indie wasn't terrible. I thought that of the CG was one of my fewer complaints. There were moments where I understand why they had to do some CG on Harrison Ford in the present, because when he was being practical and like trying to run it was like oh your body you've been in one too many plane crashes my dude yeah but yeah there was there was too much cg in my personal ranking of indiana jones movies this one is dead center depending on which way the wind is blowing raiders or last crusade is number one last crusade usually is it was the first one i saw on the big screen so i've got a real real soft spot for for last crusade and the chemistry between ford and connery is just so just amazing i think this one comes in ahead of temple of doom simply because so much cringe in temple of doom oh yeah temple of doom is probably a better made film than dial of destiny but I can watch Dial of Destiny and not be like, oh, oh, monkey brains. Oh, the British Empire as the savior imperial power coming in at the last minute to help save the poor backwards people stuff that exists in that movie. Production value can only redeem script that is painfully racist so far. And then way, way, way down even below, beyond that is Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah. Um, it's really amazing that you had some of the best, most creative minds in Hollywood. You gave them five cracks at this and they managed basically two and a half good movies. I would almost say three in that parts of Dial of Destiny and parts of Temple of Doom. And you know, Crystal Skull is not terrible until you get to the jungle. I don't have anything against the fridge scene. I love the malt shop scene. 
but it really just it just falls off the table once you get to cgi monkeys and vines and whatever shia labeouf does but parts of it are okay and if temple of doom and i was gonna say that no that wouldn't have even because they would have gone the same path it would have been slightly different the first however long half an hour of temple of doom all the stuff in shanghai with the the club and all of that that's great it's when again when they land in india and the racism really comes out that temple of doom falls apart but then you know towards the end you've got the mine the mine car scene which is just so cool I was going to say, you know, if they'd stuck in Shanghai and and done like an indie versus like criminals and artifacts thing, but there would have gotten some yellow terror villains in there pretty quick if they'd stayed in Shanghai. Yeah. Hashtag spoilers. Uh, I was really set and really happy with the ending. It appeared that they were going to go for in Dial of Destiny. The idea that this man who had devoted himself his entire life to studying history, to chasing artifacts could be willingly stranded in time. And for Indiana Jones, that was, that to me was a noble death. And I kind of wish that they had gone for that. It wouldn't have made any sense. It wouldn't have given that, that kind of saccharine arc finality that we had, but I kind of like the idea of, you know, Jones is this figure who had spent so much time studying history, just becoming history. Like, that was that was a satisfying ending for me. But then, you know, him being drugged back to the present against his will was also kind of symbolic of the character. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is 1,000 times the sidekick that Shia LaBeouf was. Oh, my God. He... Ugh. I would watch a, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and her kid sidekick spinoff. Well, that's clearly what they were going for. I don't think they're going to get it. Follow that's me on Letterboxd. That's going to be your third podcast. <laughs> Matt loves movies. I think the idea of a third podcast that is not more than... We talked about me and my buddy Rob, who we've talked about before. We've talked about doing a DS9 podcast at some point or another. It's like... Before the end of the year, as we can start it during the 30th anniversary year, that'd be like monthly or even like bi-monthly because I don't have time. <laughs> Two podcasts a, mo- a week is enough. <sighs> but we, we've put in our, our obligatory ramble at the beginning. I think it's about time we got to what we're actually going to be talking about this week. Uh, Batman comics, I believe. Indeed. And very specifically... Batman comics that feature one of Batman's main allies and most assuredly his oldest ally as he literally appeared in the first Batman comic ever, Commissioner James Gordon. Jimbo. And again, we'll we'll put the proviso at the beginning as we have when we've in general talked about the GCPD. There are issues when dealing with copaganda in the year 2023 that were not there even well no i'll rephrase that they were there they've always been there but were not as front and center and not something that was discussed as much 10 years ago and further back than they are now 
And so we have to look at these somewhat through that lens. Although these aren't procedurals in the same way that some of the other stuff we've talked about are. No, I mean, these. this is not GCPD, uh, or excuse me, this is not uh, Gotham Central uh, type material. Although I would argue that you see tropes from procedurals pop up, like in uh, in one of in our I'd say our, our main story tonight, we have oh our crime lab scenes, kind of contrived crime lab scenes, and then in other ones we've got like the the superhero undercover cop, and then we've got like the mayor you know riding Gordon's ass for some unknown reason, and then like so. We see these themes pop up, but yeah, I think you're right in that none of these three stories would be fairly uh, categorized as a police procedural. And we will get into how much police procedural they are, especially in our first story, which is the Black Mirror. Oh, we're starting with the main event. We are starting with mixing it up. Yep. Start with the big one this week. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, numbers 871 to 881. The writer is Scott Snyder. Art by Jock and Francesco Francavia. Colors by David Barron and Francavia. Letters by Todd Klein, Jared K. Fletcher, and Sal Cipriano. And edited by Mike Martz, Janelle Aslin, and Katie Kubert. The cover dates are January to October of 2011. Gotham is changing. Dick Grayson as Batman is facing a new breed of villain, and Jim Gordon is facing down a mystery he had long hoped buried, the mystery of his son, James Jr. Right out of the gate, this might not be the best Scott Snyder Batman, but it might be my favorite. Yeah, I mean, just the combination of the art the seriousness the the tone this thing is pitch black like it is dark i think it gets a little corny there at the end but i'd say the first eight and a half nine issues here are just a really really solid run and and visually my god you don't get any better you get different but you don't get any better and even though Jock and Francavia could not be more different as artists, both of their styles suit the story that Snyder is telling. We talked about it on the Snyder episode. Snyder, more than any other Bat writer I can think of, wears theme on his sleeve. And the narration in this book which, while constant, rarely if ever feels overwritten and drowning, makes the themes that he's dealing with very clear. The stuff about change, the stuff about mirroring, is all put out there not in a club-you-over-the-head way necessarily, but in a very evident way. And the narration also just holds your hand a little bit in terms of the plot. It emphasizes plot points. It circles back to that thing that you just saw happen that, oh, I don't really know what that was. But then the but then Dick Grayson jumps in. And it's like, oh, and explains it for you. Like, it is a very readable story. 
for some historical context, this is the final arc of Detective Comics Volume 1. The last part of Black Mirror is the last issue of Detective Comics before the New 52. And I am not 100% certain how much Snyder knew that he was writing the swan song of Dick Grayson as Batman. The New 52 relaunch, it feels like in many places, was sprung on the creative teams of these books. They knew Flashpoint was happening. They knew that things were going to come out different after that. But so many of the books right before the end of the DC universe were mid-plot and either rushed or just left massive gaping cliffhangers seems to me to indicate that there was not a lot of communication that, yeah, this is the end of this version of the DC universe. So if Snyder was doing this in tech, what was going on in Batman at the time? Batman was writer, artist, Tony Daniels stuff. Daniel had become the writer, artist of Batman when Morrison jumped over to Batman and Robin. So Dick Grayson becomes Batman. Mm -hmm. Detective becomes the Batwoman title for a while. Then there's some fill-in stuff. And then there's this run. Batman initially has, an, I think, one arc by Judd Winnick with Mark Bagley pencils. And then it becomes the Tony Daniel show for much of the rest of its run before the reboot. And Morrison is over on Batman and Robin. And then they start Batman Inc. And I think Pete Tomasi and may, I think maybe even Judd Winnick have a, a couple of arcs after that on Batman and Robin. Batman but, was definitely the least of the Bat titles at that point. Uh, and Daniel is doing standard like Bruce Bat, right? No, he's still doing Dick. Oh, Bruce okay. is only Batman Inc. Morrison gotcha. basically was, they were handed the keys to the Bruce Bat kingdom and the other three books were Dick. I wager if things had not rebooted, we probably would have seen Bruce Bat Damien in Batman and Robin, especially since Tomasi would go on to write the Bruce Bat Damien stuff in the New 52. I wonder if they were angling towards that. Daniel and Snyder basically swap when the New 52 happens. Snyder goes on Batman and Daniel goes on Detective. And then he just goes away. Yeah. One of the things that makes this story work for me so well is that it is a story that would only really work with Dick Grayson as Batman. The same way that the Court of Owls would only work with Bruce Wayne as Batman. They're stories that work because of who's behind the cowl. So, obviously, Dick Bat only has a, con a real connection with Zuko's daughter. Is... There anything else that says to you, oh, this had to be a dick bat story? Because I can read it, me being of the stodgy, cranky baby variety of, oh no, Bruce Wayne should always be Batman, rah, rah, rah. Like, I can read this just fine and enjoy it. The 
thematic stuff works because it's dick bruce would never look at the changes in gotham and think about how it's changing him how he'd need to change to face it bruce's indomitable will bruce would bend the city to his will rather than think about how it might have changed him or how he might have to change to face what is happening in the city. And one of James Jr.'s final monologues about Dick's compassion, I think that James Jr. misses the mark somewhat in that he doesn't see any compassion in Bruce because that is clearly a misreading of who Bruce is. But it is accurate that Dick is the most compassionate person in the DC universe. He is everyone's friend. He is the guy who is there for everybody. So it's important that he is the one dealing with the person with no empathy. And he would be the most uh, likely to give James perhaps a chance to believe the best in him, even as his father and sister want to believe the worst, which obviously they're born out to be correct. Um, let's talk a little bit about James, uh, a, a history of the character. Gordon at one point mentions a fall. When does that happen? The end of year one, when he falls off the bridge and Bruce catches him. Again, I don't remember anything. The very end of year one, Johnny Vitti, the Roman's nephew, steals baby James. Gordon pursues. Bruce pursues wearing just a bike helmet. I remember that. Mm -hmm. They're on a bridge and Vitti, and now I'm having a moment. I can't remember if he drops the baby accidentally or throws the baby off the bridge. And Bruce dives and catches the baby so he doesn't hit the ground. But the thought that that still might have physically caused damage is what is in Jim's head here. And when does James, quote unquote, break bad in the stories? Like when does when does James as this psychopath first get developed? Right here. James really? completely disappears from the narrative. He appears one other time in the book that was originally slotted to be story two this week, but is not readily available online. Thanks, DC. Thanks. In the issue, The Legends of the Dark Knight Annual 2, where Jim and Sarah get married, he gets kidnapped again. He's James Jr., the boy hostage. Kidnapped by Flass, as I recall. But uh, when he pops up here, like he is immediately treated as as a bad penny, as a uh, what's going on with you, son? I will say the continuity here is a little janky, only in that if James is born in year one, we have to assume it's been 20 years since then, which isn't terribly off but also they talk about jim and sarah's marriage which didn't take place until barbara was an adult so that's a retcon or just snyder not having the continuity quite right not a major quibble 
but it is something that's a little off. But yeah, James was brought back for this story because he was never used after Miller. He left with Barbara Sr. And then it was like, oh, and he might have died on the way back home to his home planet. (laughs) He was never used. And so Snyder took him and made him into a, a character. And a character who sadly, I'm not sure if I want to say sadly or not, became Barbara's arch nemesis when the new 52 rolled around. He would keep showing up in Batgirl stories and never again in a Nightwing story. I'm not sure if that was the right decision or not, because it was so established that he was... It felt like Snyder was setting him up to be Dick's arch nemesis and having him constantly as Barbara's foil just kept dragging her back into this cycle of family drama and stuff between her and Jim and James and Jim and her and James. And it felt like he was never able to become a fuller character because he was always in the sh- in Barbara's shadow and she was always sucked back into these cycles of family drama. The only other James Gordon story that really sticks out in my mind is uh, the man who laughs mm. or uh, wait, wait, no, that's not, that's not yeah, right. Batman um, who laughs the Batman who laughs. There we go. And I thought he was pretty effective in that. And it was, correct me if I'm wrong, that was also Jock, right? Yeah, Snyder and Jock. Yeah, they are are a good pair. Yes. That was one of the better James Gordon Jr. stories. It's not saying that Gail Simone didn't write some good James Gordon Jr. stuff. It's just that it was kind of kept feeling like they're going back to that well again with Babs. There was a brief time and we saw hints of this when he popped up in Eternal where he was recruited onto the Suicide Squad as Waller's sort of profiler. And that was an interesting turn. But that volume of Suicide Squad was canceled somewhat suddenly and that plot line was never really resolved. Takes a psychopath to know a psychopath. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, it became the sort of battle of wills between him and Waller, him trying to play her and her being Waller and being like, that's, no. Try it all you want, Sonny. You're not going to get me. I'm Amanda fucking Waller. Uh, let's see. What uh, what else we got to talk about here? Well, our other villains, as we meet three new villains here, the dealer, the roadrunner, and Tiger Shark are definitely something to talk about. I will also just say as a quicker note, God, I love the interactions between Dick and Tim in this story. You don't get a whole lot of it, but it's good. It's just that very brotherly relationship that was the hallmark of their relationship before the New 52. Just really solid. The two of them poking and teasing each other, but still obviously being brothers. Uh, we should probably talk about Dick and Alfred. Uh, uh, I will interrupt to say that the uh, the Red Robin costume, not so much. I know, you're not a fan of the uh, Dr. Midnight derivative. <laughs> and no, no, not a good look. 
I want to talk about the villains. I want to talk about that one issue that the closest we get to a procedural that's Gordon tracking down the one that got away. That's a solid story. Yeah. I want to spend some specific time on that one. So our other three, we need three other villains in here. And the Roadrunner is probably the least of them. Quickly dispatched. Yeah. A neat enough concept. Guy literally has cybernetic legs. He's a gunrunner who uses exotic cars to transport his weapons. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm probably wrong, but as I was reading this, it stuck in my head that the rich guy that Dick wound up impersonating, was that not William Rhodes? Yes. And the Roadrunner is Bixby Rhodes. Yeah, they're they're spelled differently, but that that was kind of like, I kind of wish they had had different names because it was confusing that they had such similar names so i take it one was r-o-a-d-s and the other one was r-h-o-d-e-s r-h-o-a-d-s but yeah odd choice there yes by the way roadrunner and tiger shark show up in eternal working for the roman tiger shark has more potential in that there is that level of creep that level of that you get from a Batman villain and this guy who dresses solely in endangered animals and who believes he is part of this long tradition of those who bring down societies from the seas. There is potential in that as a concept. And again, it feels like Snyder was building a rogues gallery that was Dick Grayson's rogues gallery that Sonia Branch Zuko is another character who would have been Dick's nemesis. And possible love interest. Yes. And this is the period where Tim was running most of Wayne Enterprises, where Bruce had left him with the corporate keys to the kingdom. So that's why there was a lot of talk of Tim at board meetings and things which is a little odd to leave your 18-year-old son with the one in charge of the company rather than your 25-year-old son. But Tim was the one who was more inclined to this than Dick, who would want nothing to do with business. It makes more sense than your 13-year-old son. Very true. And then finally, there's the dealer. And I thought the dealer was a great concept. And creepy as all fuck. Yeah, yeah, like, I I like the idea of Gotham being a real city and having this, this economy built around villains and superheroes and that sort of thing. And we've seen this idea pop up in other stories. In a world in which Batman and all of his rogues are real, what are the consequences of this? Like, this generates a lot of contraband, and weirdos are going to be interested in it. So I can absolutely believe that there would be a black market for Joker Venom and regular old Venom and, you know, Mad Hatter Tech and anything else that would pop up. And there are wealthy people willing to uh, to be degenerates. So, yeah, that that was an interesting idea. 
And uh, I I love that last scene of Dick interacting with this guy. And he just says, like, look, you're not you're not anything special. You're just hopped up on uh, Venom and Mad Bat, uh, Man Bat Juice. You know, get over yourself. Right, because we'd already seen that scene where he gives the speech about how it's not our compassion that separates us from the animals. It is our evil. For no other species revels in their own evil and hate like man does. Which is, again, anathema to Dick, who is so compassionate. Snyder, despite that one hiccup with when Jim and Sarah were married, he has a really good knowledge of Batman continuity. Because when he has the one officer who was supplying the dealer, he mentions that Oh, yeah, she used to run with Corrigan, which is a whole thing from Gotham Central that we haven't gotten to yet. And that was where we saw this before with the in the second arc of Gotham Central in Motive with the girl who had the Batarang that everybody, you know, wants to get their hands on that Batarang. It creates this market and it's not just for a Batarang. It's for all of the horrors that these villains unleash. So... What were your issues with with the end? You know, when you just, when you take James and you turn him into almost like a slasher villain and he's monologuing, it's less compelling than it could be, right? He spends the majority of this story, like, you're questioning, okay, has he turned a corner? You know, is this drug working? Then you get a a taste of his plot. And then by the end of it, you know, he's just a homicidal maniac, you know, interested in torture. And he's less captivating as a character by the time you get to the end. I like that Barbara called him out on that. I thought that was a good point, a good moment for Barbara. And that Barbara, even though she was kidnapped and in distress, she was never a damsel in distress. And there's that one moment where it looks like Snyder is going back to the killing joke well, with James talking about how Jim put him in Arkham and he talked to the Joker and all that. And then Barbara's like, you're kidding. Yeah, I am. But you should have seen your face. Okay, I like that, that he he could have done something to add that layer to the killing joke. He's like, no. This guy's just really fucked up. Yeah, and he's a sociopath. He has no compassion. There's no tragedy necessarily to him or his backstory. He's just born wrong. And that isn't something we get a lot of. One thing that he keeps talking about, and various people, Jim talks about it too, about how Gotham as a city, is a city where something's not right. And it fascinates me how many different versions of Gotham's history there are and how all of them have Gotham founded on something terrible. Whether it's the version where Gotham grew up around an insane asylum or the version where the cult of Barbatos was the thing that helped found the city or whatever the point of Gates of Gotham was. Right, that, or the Orgoms now in Detective, or the Court of Owls. There's always something insidious in Gotham. 
and it makes Gotham a more interesting place. I mean, Metropolis, yes, it's the city of tomorrow. It's big and it's pretty, but Metropolis isn't a character. Metropolis is a setting. So is Keystone. Opal from Starman is probably the other city that has that sort of feeling to it, but Gotham itself has a feel to it. Stories that take place in Gotham often have to take place in Gotham. Now, you see, what I would like is I would like some intrepid writer to come along and give that the uh, the audio adventures treatment. Gotham's just a city. You guys are looking for an excuse to be villains and to be psychopaths. Gotham is no different than any other place in you know this fictional version of the United States. You guys just want an excuse. That's the answer from the episode of Batman the Animated Series Trial, where there's the DA who... At the beginning of the episode, blames Batman for all the villains. And then she gets pulled into Arkham along with Bruce, where he's put on trial before a jury of the villains. And she has to defend Batman with Harvey as the prosecuting attorney. And in the end, she's like, I always blame Batman for you. But no, you all would have wound up this way. The gimmicks might be different. The excuse might be different. But this is just all who you are. Y'all just fucked up. Yeah, exactly. It's a great episode. I love so much of this. We haven't even talked about Snyder's take on the Joker, which, whoo, there's some great Joker scenes in here. And they're not many, but I love that Joker's sort of elaborate way to get the one doctor to touch him, to infect him with the Joker venom. And that Joker immediately recognizes that Dick isn't his Batman, which granted he'd encountered both of them at the end of Morrison's Batman and Robin. I also like, and we haven't seen Snyder write him a lot, I really like Snyder's Bullock. And especially that Bullock also realizes that Dick isn't the Batman that he'd been dealing with all these years. It's real easy to write Harvey Bullock as, you know, slovenly and just sort of a bull in a china shop. But he's smarter than people give him credit for. He does that Columbo thing. Just one more thing. When it, when it comes to GCPD characters, I think at their core, Gordon, Montoya, and Bullock have to be competent, right? They can have disagreements. They can have different methods. They can have different views but they can't be bad cops. Once you put that into the equation or once you make them crooked or something, you are really taking away from what makes them them. Like they are supposed to be the good Gotham cops. There are so few of them. You know, we said this is going to be Jim Gordon stories. And I think we've talked around Gordon, but I don't think we've spotlighted what makes this such a good Jim Gordon story. Because this is a lot of Gordon's struggle. This is Gordon really wrestling with, is my son a monster? And him eventually coming down on the side of, yes, he is, and him doing the right thing. But there's a lot of him interacting with Barbara, interacting with Dick, where Boy, howdy, he never says he knows, but he so fucking knows. The police procedural stuff in this story that I thought was especially contrived. And then let's let's get to that 
you know, the tracking down the one that got away. The idea that Bruce Wayne would fund a crime lab for the GCPD and then so that we could have Gordon and Dick in the same scenes and we have to repeat this same beat of, yeah, I'm sorry that the rest of the police force doesn't want to use your crime lab. They're kind of prideful assholes and, you know, da, 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 da. it was a strange beat to have to repeatedly hit when the whole point of it was, oh, yeah, I just want Dick Grayson, not Batman and Gordon interacting in this space. Like it was a long way to go for just a handful of beats. I can see your point. But that one issue that's juxtaposing Jim hunting down this killer who got away now that he's out of Blackgate with him remembering the trip where James might have taken his first life is one of Snyder's best single comics. The Francovia art, Jock is a great artist. Francovia is in my personal like top 10, if not top five. I have a metaphorical page in my sketchbook reserved for the day that I can find Francovia at a convention. I don't care how much it costs, but I have, do not have a Jim Gordon sketch in my sketchbook of Batman characters because I am saving that character and that page for Francovia. Francovia has a real, at least uh, uh, similarity to me as uh, Chris, uh, was it Samney? Yes. Just visually stunning, those nice thick lines, just just a, such a rich palette, always gorgeous to look at. And here, Francovia is working with such a strong writer. Samney doesn't always get the best writers. If you haven't, Francovia and Snyder's Night of the Ghoul that they did through, I think, Comixology first and was recently done through uh-huh. Dark Horse. Real, real solid three-issue horror miniseries. I worry with current day Snyder that he is stretched a, a bit thin because he's doing so many projects for Comixology. That one issue just the narration and Jim thinking about his son, thinking about this guy showing the work he did to figure out that this guy is obviously the one who was the Peter Pan killer showing you how smart Jim is and how good at this he is shows you what a blind spot James Jr. is for him. Absolutely. And I'm not saying that that particular story was uh, influenced by Manhunter, but it certainly has some strong Manhunter vibes. Yes, I can absolutely see where you're coming from on that one. This is a real, real good story. And I have a bad feeling like I'm going to have a lot of work to do shifting things down on our big board on the uh, the website after this one, because I think it's time. Uh, that means it's time for Black Mirror on the big board. We are at 282 stories on the big board. Number one is still the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Number 50 is Rooftops, Tom King and Mitch Jared's Batman Catwoman story. 
Coming in at a sexy, vampy 69, it's Batman Bloodstorm. At 100 is Images, the Denny O'Neill, Brett Blevins retelling of the first Batman Joker story. At 150 is Robin Year One, the Robin annual that retells Dick Grayson's origin. At 200, we've got Shadowbox, where Batman fights King Snake. At 250 is Spawn Batman. And all the way down at the bottom at 282, it's still White Knight. Boo. Low ball f- to just start out. This is in the top 50 at least. Yes. And I was thinking probably more like top 30. Because uh, right now, 30 is Batman Adventures Mad Love. Yeah. I definitely can put it above that. It's not our our highest Snyder is Court of Owls at nine. Again, while this might be my favorite Snyder, I think that one is probably a tighter story and is more influential than this. So it's not yeah. going that high. Yeah. Uh, Dick Bat is at this point an appendage. It is an interesting quirk. It is a side road that we took at one point, not really a going concern. I think this is somewhere in between 20 and 30. That's that's rough. But then also like the top 20 is hard to crack. Right. I'm just, I'm looking at it. The art here is so good. Number 20, Nightfall Part 1. That has very solid superhero art. Your Bray Fogles, your Aparos, your Graham Nolans. It's really good superhero art. This is better art. Oh, I, I might be talking myself into putting this above that. This also might be a better story than that. But that story does such a good job in doing this slow breakdown of Bruce Wayne, of setting up all of the pieces that we needed for Nightfall to be. If the universe hadn't rebooted, if we had had time where where it continued, where both Bruce and Dick were Batman, even if Dick eventually went back to being Nightwing, this might have wound up higher because it would have been something foundational to wherever Dick Grayson's trajectory was from here. Exactly. But they rebooted the universe. And so this becomes a really good last hurrah for Dick as Batman. But all of the potential that is set up here is not allowed to go anywhere. Let me pose this to you. I think... It goes either right above or right below Nightfall because Swamp Thing, 51, 52, Garden of Earthly Delights, that made me cry. This is very good, but it didn't make me cry. So I'm going to say that for me, the ceiling is 19. Okay, I can can give you that. I can go with that. I'm just I'm trying to figure out in my head where how this falls in relation to Nightfall. Because I think this is a better crafted comic, but Nightfall does something that has such echoes from there. 
that there is something to be said for a story of influence that even if it's not quite as good as this that has that however to argue my against myself here this is scott snyder's first batman comic and he becomes one of the definitive batman writers of the 21st century and we wouldn't have gotten court of owls or any of that other stuff if this hadn't been such an incredible book I think this is number 20. All right, let's do it. On, I'd say you could defend this safely on the strength of the art. It is one of the best looking comics we have on this list, no doubt. And now for something entirely different. Oh yeah. Next up is Badge of Honor. This is Batman Adventures Volume 1, number 15. The writer is Kelly Puckett. Pencils by Mike Parabek, inks by Rick Burchett, colors by Rick Taylor, letters by Tim Harkins, and edited by Scott Peterson and Darren Vincenzo. The cover date is December of 1993. Jim Gordon has 24 hours to find an undercover cop who's been exposed and taken by Rupert Thorne's mob. We are once again in a Batman Adventures story the first generation of tie-in books to Batman the Animated Series. And we've done a few of these, and they are various degrees of good. I don't think there's a, there's been a bad one in the bunch. This is, I feel like, was one of the better ones that we've done so far. Yes, because it has such a good Gordon story. Uh, we got undercover cops. We've got, you know, we got a deadline. We got kind of matches Malone. You know, I looked at him and was like, even they didn't call him that. Couldn't he have the match hanging out of the side of his mouth? It's, I mean, it's so obvious from Jump that that's Batman in disguise. They don't do it, but it's like, oh, that would have been great if they called him Mr. Malone or something. This is just a fun read. And it's got Gordon kicking ass and... It's good comics. This feels like a natural extension of the Jim Gordon from Batman Year One. There's one moment where he walks into a room and he's got his gun on these five mobsters. And like, you, you can't shoot us all, Gordon. He's like, you're right. You know, at my age, this is just a revolver. I could probably only shoot three of you before you took me down. Who wants to be one of those three? And then the other scene where it says, all right, you can shoot her or him, whoever it was, and then I'll shoot you. Or you could point the gun at me and then I'll shoot you. You know, do what you do what you're going to do. This just once again reminds us that Batman, the animated series and thus the extension comics that come from it did some of the best Batman mob stories. Oh, it's good mob stories. And I like this uh, this little shit lieutenant here. It's, yes. uh, excuse me, it's uh, Weasel. Weasel, the, the accent does on the, the syllabus there. Just so good. Yeah. So good. Even in the notes, like Thorne calls him Weasel in front of his other capos. Yeah, this guy was that absolutely stereotypical mobster who's just clearly not terribly good at this whole thing but he's afraid of break my heart fredo it was you 
And I like that Gordon goes to Weasel's club and you go to the club and it's like, you mean dive bar? This is a guy who isn't even given, you know, a decent club. It's like he's given the the lowest ranking place because he's just not even worth Thorne's attention. And how fast he turns the minute prison is, is brought up. Selling liquor without a license. Yeah, you'll only go up for a couple of weeks, but you're going to go up. <laughs> what do you want to know? What do you want to know? It's just a solid, not a procedural, but crime story. Gordon is given this problem, and he also doesn't do the dumb thing that a lesser writer would have him do. It's like, no, Batman, you can't be involved. I need to just do this myself. It's like, no, I'm going to follow this. I need you to follow Thorn because Thorn's going to want to pull the trigger on this guy. So this way we have twice the chance of saving him. If I don't do it, if you follow Thorn, you'll be able to. It shows that Jim isn't too proud to do what he can to save one of his men. The only negative thing I can say about this is that the design for Thorn does not match up all that well to the series. There are moments where he doesn't look quite as natty as Thorne does. He's, yeah, I think the parapet- it's, it's It's something about the face. It's not quite right. Like the shape of the face and the lines, it's not, it ain't there. It's rounder here than yeah. it is in the show. Yeah, I, I can I can see where you're, coming from on the art that bit of art i think gordon looks great i think the fight scenes here are real clean and even in the chaos of some of those bigger fight scenes and that's something Parabek does really well you can follow the action i think we we talked about this with tree of knowledge the batgirl robin issue but i like that as there where you saw Bullock's report and that was the absolute highlight of that issue, Puckett has that little bit of text in Detective Miller's file about Wiesel. And it's just this little thing that you could have just had Gordon narrate that, but no, it's there for you to read along with Gordon. And you could have put some shitty like dummy text in there or just in squiggles. But no, that goes the extra line and the reader's drawn and you read that and then you're paid off, right? Your your investment is rewarded. So absolutely top notch there. I don't know if this it was intentional. I mean, the guy's name is Anton Miller. And I'm just wondering if that's what in my head now is is pulling a Tom King that we're talking Anton first, the guy who designed Gotham for Tim Burton and Frank Miller, or if they're just common names that they put together. But at least one way or the other, if it is a nod, it's at least subtle. Yes. Better than like, uh, I turned on Snyder Place and then we drove down Miller Boulevard and I parked at Capullo Square. Reading as much Tom King as I have at this point has trained me to look for this now. Yeah. Sometimes a name is just a name, Matt. We get Gordon as the tough guy from Jump here. Because, I mean, this opens not necessarily in media res, but it opens with an action beat. 
with Thorne's capo just coming to Gordon's door and being like, hey, we caught your undercover cop. You got 24 hours to hand over anything he gave you or he dies. It's not like there's a bunch of preamble of Gordon worrying about where this cop was or having to show Thorne take the cop. We're just starting with Gordon in action and Gordon looking at this guy and being like, all right, I should just take it and go, but I can't let it look like a guy like this can push me around. You cannot point a gun at the commissioner of police and expect to get away with it. Nope. So Jim Gordon's going to punch you in the head. But Gordon... Do what you're going to do. Shoot me if you're going to, but fuck off. And Gordon knows just how far he can push it. Bullock, love him like you do, would probably have pushed harder and might have gotten to a point where the guy might have actually shot him. But Jim knows just how far he can go before crossing that line. And I love that, again, even when Gordon gets clobbered by a hand truck and these guys are picking him up, he takes two of them out. This is Gordon really showing off that even though he's old here, older, he can hold his own. And partially it's, I think, because these guys underestimate him. But this is still the guy who, boy, it's been five years since I took out a Green Beret. I'll give him the baseball bat and leave him the odds. I still love that that badass moment where you take the crooked partner out to the woods, you beat him, you strip him, and you leave him there. Don't fuck with me. And that was one another great little continuity nod. I didn't mention it back in Black Mirror, where Roadrunner, back when he was a punk kid on the south side of gotham he ran scams for flas again they didn't belabor that point they didn't make it oh flas gordon's ex-partner okay if you knew that oh right that was the sleazebag partner that gordon took out in year one great that's a nice little nod if you didn't know it okay they were just mentioned the name and it just went you didn't need to belabor that, like, look how smart I am that I'm calling back to Batman year one. Yeah. The very end of this also really does that Batman the Animated Series thing right. Batman the Animated Series so often ended on a nice grace note. And here, where Gordon has gone through all this, he's gotten beat up, he's fought his way through how many mobsters... But in the end, he's here and he gets to hand Miller back his badge and watch Thorne get put in the back of a squad car. And the final dialogue, I'm bruised, battered, and exhausted. Tomorrow I'll feel like dirt, but not tonight. Not tonight. It's a great little note for who Jim Gordon is. Listen, in the real world, a cab, but... You want to live in a fictional world or watch a fictional world where things are better. They are. That's what and you want. That's why I think acknowledging the problems with modern policing while also looking at this as an idealized version of that and not saying, oh, well, going both sidesism, the both sidesism of, well, clearly there's got to be people like Gordon. 
Joker don't because he's not real. There are people like Batman either. Anytime you see these people out there in big cities wearing hockey pads who say they're real world superheroes, no, you guys are going to get yourselves shot. Yeah, they're just dum-dums. And if they're not dum-dums, they're racist pieces of shit like Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah. Gordon is an idealized figure in a system that is rotten through and through. As is often the case with Batman Adventures stories, slight isn't the right word because there's a lot packed in here, but they're written to be easily digestible. And the fact that you can get this much emotion and this much story out of something that is written to be digested by eight-year-olds speaks to the craft put into it. And the care. Yes. The first the first volume of this series really is just exemplary. The others are good batman and robin adventures gotham adventures volume two are all really good but this first volume is really crafted so well and i believe on that note it's time for batman adventures number 15 on the big board right now our highest batman adventures is mad love at 31 i don't think that it goes up that high Free of Knowledge is at 103, and I think this is better than that. So I think yes. we're looking at the top 100. Yep. 96 is Super Friends, the Batman-Superman issue. I think this is better than that. Uh, we got Annual Number 1 at 60. That's There's an interesting point. So that's the various villains attempt to go straight stories so you've got the scarecrow one the english professor right but the the ventriloquist one which is exemplary the fun little two-page harley quinn bit and the roxy rocket framing device and then you have that also that backup with joker making his way through gotham after falling off a blimp and people shouting at the joker at night which is just not the thing to do. I would not do that. So let's let's say it's below annual number one. If we want to say that, I believe it probably also has to be below Venom at 66. But I don't know how much farther down I would go. Because this is this is a good book. Interesting point of comparison. We have 69. Nice. Now, uh, which is Loyalties, which is that other Jim Gordon story, the one where Babs was the witness and he protected her identity. And now he has to go back to Chicago because the mobsters have finally found out who she is or are getting closer to who she is. So it's another Jim Gordon crime story. Solid ass book. It is. Part of me is always like putting two stories so similar back to back. Is that creating like neighborhoods on the list? You know what? I might put this right below Venom. 
Okay. New 67. Because right below that is the third Batman Black and White miniseries, which, as with any anthology, has great material and has some not as great material. Obviously, being this high on the list, it has to be generally better. But I think this is just a really solid one shot. And hey, we appreciate a really solid one shot. You look at our list and you can tell. And our final story of the night is Commissioner Gordon Walks a Beat. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, number 131. The only creators credited at this point on this book are Pencil and Inks from Howard Sherman and edits by Jack Schiff. The cover date is March of 1947. A new police commissioner has been appointed, Batman is out, and Jim Gordon is just a beat cop. Can Batman discover why Gordon was demoted and get his old ally back? I would like to start first, because we're not going to cover it in any other situation. Maybe we will. We probably won't. But let's talk about the Slam Bradley story (laughs) here. I knew you were going to. I knew we were going to wind up going there. Uh, Because it is fucking bonkers. It is Slam has a partner who looks like he's from Archie. And uh, there's a, a room rented by people from the circus. And uh, it's just wild. It was a completely weird story. I saw that there was a Slam Bradley story in this issue. And I was like, oh, well, there's no way we're not going to have to talk about this at least a little. Let me look at this. Oh, what the fuck is this thing? The other stories in here, aside from the Slam Bradley and the Batman story, there was also an Airwave story, some Boy Commandos. There's some seriously weird, fun stories in these old, gigantic, golden age monster comics. I'm trying to bring up the issue in my uh, universe Wow, I'm not going to go back and re-record this entire thing. Uh, I, I, there was a typo in my notes. And so I must correct myself right now. This was not Detective Comics 131. As I noted, I believe this is Detective Comics 121. I'm going to double check that now before I further stick my foot in my mouth. Nope, I, yes, this is Detective Comics 121, not 131. I apologize to everyone out there who expects me to be perfect. We're just going to throw the whole show out and start over again. Yeah, uh, no, no, I need sleep. But yeah, this Slam Bradley story is just weird. It's it's like there's two art styles in the one book mixed together. It feels like Who Framed Roger Rabbit with the animated and the live action characters next to each other. It's real weird. The circus folk have like a, a style and Bradley's partner is got a style. Yeah. Very strange. It is. But we also do have a Batman story in here. And I'm going to give everybody a little peek behind the, the bat chat curtain because this particular episode was always headlined by black mirror. 
but neither of these other two stories were the stories that I originally had planned for this episode. The first one to drop out, and both of them changed out recently. This one was added because this is one of the stories referenced in our recent Batman Dies at Dawn Grant Morrison episode. This is one of the stories that Morrison used as an influence for Batman Dies at Dawn. So I swapped this out for an issue of Detective that has a day in the life of Jim Gordon backup. And then, as I said, when talking about it before, I originally had wanted to do Legends of the Dark Knight Annual 2, Vows, but that one's not up on Infinite or Comixology and is not available in any trades right now. So we would have had to do something terribly illegal and we would never do anything like that. Would we will? No. And look, it's not because we have any kind of morals here uh, because these books should be easily available. It's because reading those fucking pirate sites is a goddamn pain in the asshole. So bad. I often come up with these concepts and I'm like, well, hopefully by the time we get around to doing this episode, this book will be available and sometimes they're not. And so sometimes you wind up swapping something and you get a real gem like badge of honor. This one, this is a weird, weird little story. It's not bad. No. Right? I, I love the Milton Burl cameo. That's nice. <laughs> it's the mayor makes this decision to replace Gordon. And you're like, oh, what the fuck's going on here? Turns out the mayor's son is in deep to, uh, what's his name? Sure Beth. Sure Thing Smiley. Yeah, Sure Thing Smiley, who's willing, as uh, any degenerate uh, mobster is, to just bet on anything. Yeah, who looks like a low-rent joker. Like, he's got the, the constant fixed smile, like psychotic smile, which is a choice when Batman's arch nemesis is the joker. But also, with this being 47, I don't know how many supervillain stories we were getting in the late 40s. By this point, we were graduating to mobsters and aliens and other gleepclops, and we weren't getting back to supervillains until later. But still, yeah, this this guy, he, he makes weird bets, and then it uh, depends on people being like, Okay, sure. You you made that bet with me, so I'll let you completely violate the spirit of the bet by, oh, I bet I can putt this golf ball a mile. Oh, I didn't think he was going to do it at the top of a hill. Or I can throw this feather over that rafter. I didn't say I wouldn't attach a clip to it to give it weight. Aha! But the minute Batman makes a bet with him, it's like, sure, I'll let you shoot it, Gordon. But I've got to examine the gun, examine the bullet, hold it before you do, hold the money, and i got to pat down Gordon beforehand. And I guess that's like, oh, he knows how to play all the angles, so he's going to know how to beat the odds. But still, fuck you, dude. What, what year did you say this was? 47. So this actually isn't Milton Berle. That's that's kind of remarkable. No. 
Uh, Milton Berle had his, and I'm reading the the Wikipedia article. He had his television breakthrough in 1948, uh, and he did become like the star of television. And he's also quite a bit younger than the mobster here. But this is man, this is a dead ringer for like 1960s Milton Berle. Anywho, um, yeah, I, I thought this was a real enjoyable, silly story. Uh, I love just kind of the ludicrousness of, you know, Jim Gordon busted down to patrolman Gordon. We have seen him relieved. Uh, we've seen him replaced. We've seen him sidelined. We've seen him, you know, under the thumb of the mayor. But this is like the the penguin, you know, becomes the mayor sort of level of ridiculousness this is one of those stories where i kind of wish that this had been done even 10 years later when you were down to two stories in a comic so this could have gotten 20 pages instead of 10 and we could have spent more time with gordon on the beat Mm -hmm. because gordon on the beat is really just a few panels it's mostly Batman and Robin dealing with Smiley and then a, a very it's a wonderful life moment with all the cops being willing to pony up some money to allow Batman to have the money to make the bet with Smiley, completely ignoring the fact that he's Bruce Wayne and could have gone between his couch cushions to find hundred thousand dollars. I mean, yeah, he promised Smiley that it would be $100,000 from the GCPD, but I don't think Smiley cared where the money came from as long as he got the money. But even the shoeshine boy at headquarters contributes. And, and Smiley even using the the bet to rob uh, somewhere and w- get rid of the money, get the money out in a side of piano because that wasn't just a unnecessary set piece to let Batman and Robin do a cool little stunt at the end. And Batman's way around this is silly. It's like, okay, so the bet is I will shoot Jim Gordon in the heart and he won't get hurt. And so, of course... And if he does, you can arrest me for murder. Right, yes. And of course, Batman put a plate of invisible bulletproof glass in between him and Gordon when he fired, as opposed to the fact that he was standing right next to Smiley, who had the blackmail stuff on him, as well as the $100,000, and Batman couldn't have just, you know, punched him in the head and taken it. Yeah, but you want to you wanna get those promissory notes back, Matt. Really? Your, your son's a dumbass, and he lost... Hey, who bets $100,000 with a guy like this? How is anybody betting? When this guy's own mob is betting with him, it's I'm pretty sure sure thing Smiley has some kind of like low-level psychic power that gets people to believe things he's saying because that's the only explanation. Because otherwise, why would anyone take him up on any of these bets? He's obviously uh, got an angle. Ah, uh, see here, Matt. I bet you a hundred G's. That I can't, uh, or that I can drive this golf ball a mile. What do you say? Yes, master. Aha! I put the golf ball in my car and I drove it. Aha! Now pay up. Curses. 
I also think this might be the first time where the bat signal is actively smashed with an axe. Yes, yes, that's what I thought. I'm like, we have seen that a thousand times. If this is the first, I love it. I'm pretty sure this is the first time somebody takes an axe to the bat signal. And I thought it was interesting that Vane, the police commissioner, the replacement police commissioner, like I was expecting him to be in Smiley's pocket or something. It's like, no, he's just doing what the mayor says. I thought he was the golden age answer to that guy who took over in Batman Eternal. And it's like, no, just the guy who got promoted. And in the end, it's like, oh, well, I get make the same salary as chief inspector. So sure, I'll stand down. Which is just such an unnecessary detail, right? Getting the salary, the salary yeah. structure of Gotham PD. I was like, why is that even there? He could have just been like, yeah, congratulations, Commissioner. This was your job all along. Here you go. Okay, so we need to know that we don't have to feel bad for Inspector Vane because he's not taking a salary cut. But I did like the nod toward civil service laws, which explained why Gordon couldn't have been fired. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, the policeman's union isn't going to let him get fired. So instead, he'll just be pounding a beat as a crotchety old beat cop. Again, that is just one of these things where I really would have loved, I would love to see somebody do an expanded version of this story. The only problem is that Jim Gordon now was tough as nails into his older years. So it wouldn't have been as funny as, you know, the, more Gordon in his dotage of these golden age stories, having to walk a beat. Someone who gets you know so shocked that Batman is shooting at him that he's going to fall right over. And I, I like that Batman was clever enough to use Smiley's own compulsive gambling against him. It's like, ah, I know how to get out of this. Hey, Smiley. Let's, let's make some dumb bet, right? Right. I've got a dumb bet to use on you, and you're obviously not going to be able to say no. I also did, I did research. Chadwick Carfax, the son, and his father, the mayor, never show up again. Nope. Swinging back to Black Mirror for one second. There's that one scene with Gordon in a flashback as Lieutenant Gordon investigating the Peter Pan killer with a police commissioner who we've never seen before or after. Is it just me? Or I have this feeling like in between when Loeb gets fired at the end of year one and when Gordon takes over as commissioner, there were like 30 police commissioners who kept the job each for like a week. A day. And a half. Yeah. Before Gordon or somebody else like, yeah, you're corrupt. Here's the proof. Why does this guy keep getting, let's put him in the job. He's going to keep getting us fired. Joker kills, like, I don't know, seven or eight of them. <laughs> right. Six of them are on the take from the Roman. Twelve are on the take from the Penguin. It's, it's just this cavalcade of just incompetent police commissioners until they finally just put Gordon in the place because it's just not worth it. This is one of the, this is a, a trifle. This is a little golden age trifle that I don't think would be remembered particularly if Morrison hadn't used Commissioner Vane and Gordon on a beat in 
Batman dies at dawn, but they used it. And so now it's like, oh, this is, it's still a footnote, but it's a footnote that's going to get used more often. Grant Morrison, you weirdo. God bless the weirdos. And with that, I think it's time to put Detective Comics number 121. Commissioner Gordon walks a beat on the big board. So I just said it. Uh, we're down in Trifle Town. Going down, down, down to Trifle Town. So Trifle Town is... There are various patches of... of there's, there's, it's, it's Trifle neighborhoods. You know, there's the really solid Trifles in the 120s, 130s. And then there's the, oh, well, these aren't bad, but they're not anything particularly impressive in the 190s and upper 200s. The trifliest of trifles, Batman 66, Joker's Comedy of Errors, aka Joker's Boner, uh, 195. I think to me is... This is the best of Trifle Town. It is silly. It is dumb. I will enjoy it forever, but, you know, I'm not going to pretend that it's a masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, that's that's better than this. I, I think 197, the first Vicky Vale and Mad Hatter is also probably better than this. Uh, Luther, you're driving me sane. Another Trifle at 211. Better. Yep. Little Red Book. Batman Adventures Volume 1 number 9. The another Rupert Thorne Batman Adventures story. This is the one with the ledger. Hard to say, but at the same time I'd probably also say that this goes above 220. Lisa Grass. Yeah, uh, that that's when we start getting into flawed territory. Yeah, that that book is dookie. Uh, the, the stuff below it is either flawed or and there's some stuff down there that needs some re-rankening because i think grounded at 224 now that you've seen and have a better understanding of batman beyond i think that probably could be adjusted up a little but most of the stuff below that has some real flaw to it and i don't think this one has any real flaws it's just trifling yeah so let's say this yeah you just mentioned little red book i don't know if it goes above that but this is fun and weird and kind of silly so maybe it does um i would not have a problem putting it over batman noel at 217 just because i don't think there's much to that yeah. And then above that is the last Batgirl story. That one that again has that same feeling of boy, there was a lot more to this at one point. And then they're like, yeah, that three issue miniseries that we ordered from you, you've got one double sized special to try to squeeze all of that into. Good luck. Yeah. And so all these things with introducing Barbara's best friend from childhood. And never this, appear again. This vigilante who you never find out who they are. It's a complete story, but only just barely. Not as, I would definitely say, so if we're putting it above Little Red Book, I don't think it goes above the cat, the first Catwoman story at 2.13. Okay, I can, like, I can deal with that. 
I mean, again, we're, we're both in golden age stories, but that one is a little less ridiculous in its caper. Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul also is missing. It feels like it's missing bits. It and last Batgirl story have that same problem. Well, how about right below the cat then? Okay. 214. Sounds good. Detective Comics 121. And that does it for tonight. Next week, it's three stories of Batman's adventures outside of Gotham. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, Jen Keman, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus. Oh, Bobby, 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 I'm so sorry for what we're going to do to you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sregioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>